in its grace this hour. All right. And now, to hear our Lord and God's very word, very teaching to us, amen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, is that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for all your many gifts, and it is particularly your greatest gift, the gift of your Son, in whom and by whom we have salvation. And we thank you. Father, we thank you for your word, which teaches us, which builds us up, Lord, which draws us ever closer to you and molds us into the image of your Son. Father, give us ears to hear now, and may you enlighten our understanding so that we can know these truths that you desire for us to know. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is really good to be with you all this morning. Thinking of uh, our good sister Bev this morning, and you know, just the realities. Uh, was at the prayer meeting yesterday. Wendy, our family went, and uh, her sister lived to be ninety-two years old. And uh, we were talking just what a vapor it's been. Just you know, the Bible describes our life as a vapor, and um, she lived ninety-two years, and it's like it's gone like that, just immediately. And then we got onto the subject of uh, eternal life. Amen. Think for a moment. Ninety-two years is but a blip. Just a blip. She's now entered into the presence of God. She was indeed a, a Christian. And uh, she will indeed remain there for all of eternity. Whew. Think of that. What that means to us. How important God's word is. We just read it. How important it really is to us. Especially First and Second Thessalonians, I said, I've really, I've really gleaned a lot from, from these two letters. And Wendy even said, boy, that's really been some really, and she's kind of uh, maybe a little biased towards me, but it's been really good and so practical for us. And I like how one pastor, he, he wrote about Second Thessalonians, just the letter itself. And I like what he said, and listen to what he says. It was woven by the careful hands of a tent maker. Second Thessalonians adorns the New Testament like a literary tapestry. When looked at from the earthward side, we find the believers suffering in chapter 1, and we certainly looked at that last week, didn't we? 
And here this morning as we begin chapter 2, we're going to see that they're shaken from their composure a little bit. And again, this is why the word of God and the truthfulness of the word of God is so important to us. And then thirdly, uh, he says that we see there that the brethren were slackening, as we saw in the, in the first book, slackening from their, really their everyday lives, their biblical living. We see that there. And he says, then Paul displays the heavenward side of the tapestry. And from that vantage point, we gain much encouragement to persevere. And again, this is the thing I think that I've learned a lot through First and Second Thessalonians. It helps us to walk through the furnace of persecution, he says, over the seas of prophetic error. And brethren, that's very important. We will address that this morning, just like we did in Bible study this morning. Prophetic error. It's very, very important that we, through the word of God, and of course, he says, around the pitfalls in our practical living. And that's really what it's been really good for me, just my overall practical living. This letter helps us, he says, make sense of our suffering, that our suffering is not just willy-nilly something that just happens out there, but rather that God always has a purpose in it. Trust him in that. And again, to gain doctrine stability. <laughs> Doctrinal stability is very, very important in today's day and age, brethren. And to be steadfast in the principles of responsible living. And as we come to the second chapter of Second Thessalonians this morning, we will indeed realize and discover that it is a most unique prophetic chapter that God has placed in his sacred scriptures. It is unique in many ways, but we see here as we're going to look, there's no other chapter that covers precisely, amen, the same distinct points of revelation, in eschatology, as chapter 2 does here. Now, again, we saw it in Bible study this morning. There's something called systematic theology. You systematically look at Scripture. You allow Scripture to interpret itself. So we can glean a lot from that, but it is unique here in that some things that Paul reveals to us here, it is distinct. Therefore, sometimes because of these sorts of things, this weighty portion of Scripture has indeed been the occasion of much debate and discussion, <laughs> as we all know. Now, in reality, as we look at this portion of Scripture, especially chapter 2, the challenge in understanding it comes from the idea that this is a supplement to what Paul has already said, portions of it, amen? But portions of it, too, he taught them orally. And so what he said to them orally, some of it was not written down. And so what happens here is, again, it creates and can create, if you will, amongst the brethren, much debate and discussion. And we see that in verse number five. Look at verse number five. There. Look what Paul says. Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things. And so, again, there are some things that he wrote down, led by the Spirit of God, that he spoke spirit by, by the Spirit of God that we have written down here, solid and for eternity. But he also said some words. He spoke orally to them some things concerning these things. And so he reminds them of that. Hey, remember that I spoke these things to you. Remember that. And that's really going to be important for us. So what does that then do for us? As you, again, your eschatological view will interpret how you interpret chapter 2 here. It really does. There are some brethren that believe that Paul is speaking here of two separate events. Christ's second coming... Amen, which he's certainly speaking about. 
and then the rapture of the church, which are separated by a certain period of time. So that would be, if you're a pre-trib rapture person, that's what you would believe. However, there are other brothers and other sisters, of course, amen, who believe that our Lord's second coming and the rapture of the church are indeed happened simultaneously, and they are two parts of one great event in time. That would be post-trib. That would be a post-trib person. They would believe that, amen, that, that the, the brothers go through the tribulation and those sorts of things. So again, there is some much discussion and much uh, debate concerning this reality. And so what we want to do this morning is just take a look at our text. And you can certainly understand, and systematically, again, I see why historic premillennialists would believe this and why uh, uh, just a, you know, a premillennialist would believe this or that. There, there are some things that certainly would lean both directions, although many of you know I've changed my view just a little bit, and it's getting more and more sharp <laughs> as we consider the text. Look there, if you would, at verse number 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 1. Look what the Bible says there. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, there it is, the, the second advent, and by the gathering together unto him. Right in one sentence there, the two together. The rapture and the rapture and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we remember, brethren, that from last Lord's Day morning, that Paul has just finished dis discussing, if you will, here, the Lord's second coming in terms of vengeance and everlasting punishment. He just got done saying that back in chapter 1, verses 7, 8, and 9. He said, for those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are indeed destined for eternal punishment, separation from God himself. Amen? That's what he said there. So he was speaking to the, to the brethren in terms of judgment and punishment. And one of the purposes that the Lord Jesus, when he comes, that's one of the purposes that he will indeed dole out. So Paul, again here in our letter, brethren, as he said, remember, <laughs> this is a good thing, brethren, for us to remember. Again, this is what he's doing. He's reminding them again of some details, some important details concerning the Lord's second coming and the rapture, if you will. Because of all the confusion and misconceptions being hurled about, he calls the brethren unto doctrine stability, doctrinal stability. This is what he's saying. He uses that word beseech. He starts by asking them, and again, reminding them, he says, with a compelling request, with an urgent plea that courses its way through verse number two. And so you look there again as he's calling them to doctrinal biblical stability. Look at verse number two. He uses a couple words there. And again, it draws our attention to what was happening. Look at verse number two. That you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. So again, he's addressing an issue that was taking place. There was doctrinal confusion. There was uh, aberrant doctrine that was being taught. And he's saying, hold on a minute. You remember what I said to you. Again, verse 5, our closing verse. He again reminds them, remember what I said to you. And so there is indeed some shaking going on. There's some troubling going on, again, within the brethren. He just got done teaching them in his first letter. That's why this second one was a quick follow-up to the first one. Immediately, I mean, I told you last Lord's Day morning, it was a, within a matter of a month or two at the most where he had to write and send this back to them because this was taking place amongst the brethren. Mentally, huh, can I say that word? Mentally, brethren, 
They were being shaken. That word means to cause to waver or doubt, to topple or, or impair a settled resolution. The question is, what is the settled resolution? Do you see what happens when, when false teachers come in? They start to pick a little doubt. They start to do a little bit here. They try and shake your, your firm foundation. And this is what's happening. He says, your mind, mentally, you are being shaken. What were they being shaken about? What is the settled resolution that he has been teaching in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 of, chapter, of book 1 and 1, 2, 3 of, verse, of uh, book number 2? Well, again, he says it, doesn't he? It is the coming of our Lord Jesus and the gathering of ourselves together. He's reminding them, again, how important this is in the life of a Christian brethren. People often say, well, you know, that, you know, that eschatology stuff, yeah, 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 it's really not that important. Yes, it is. It is important. It is important. Paul would have never addressed it again to the believers here. He would have just let them believe whatever they want. Instead, he, he says, no, no, brethren, you're being shaken in mind. You're being troubled in what is happening here. In fact, it's interesting here that this terminology that's used here in 2 Thessalonians, is, is used one other time, only one other time. It's an amazing thing when you consider this thing. Now, what Paul is addressing here is the eternal church. Let me show you the only other time in the Bible that this gathering, this word is actually used. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. And again, this has to do with the local church. And I heard not too long ago, all right, I'm not going to say what I was going to say. Is dimwit a bad word? I, I guess. You know. We had some person teaching on this portion of scripture, and they said it has nothing to do with the local church. Yeah, yeah, it does. It has everything to do with the Christians gathering together. Yes, it certainly does. In fact, it's the only other time in scripture that that word is used. The eternal gathering when the Lord comes, and then while we're living here in real earthly time, look what Paul said, or the author of Hebrews says here in chapter 10. Look at verse number 22. Again, he tells us, there's a whole bunch of let us's right here, right? I mean, let us draw near with a true heart and a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Let us consider uh, one another to provoke unto love and good works. Look at verse 25, the only other time it's used. It has to do with the local churches gathering together, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. What? Together, it's the same word as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and much more, so much and much and so much the more as you see the day what approaching. So he's addressing Christ's second coming in our gathering, and he's a, he's a, he's also addressing us in earthly time, that the local church in the Lord's day and the gathering around the Lord's day is not men's idea. All right, it's not if I feel like it, if I want to, or whatever. It is indeed important. So he addresses it here. There's two gatherings. There's a gathering of the local church. There's a gathering that God is going to do eventually in the eternal realm of things. Paul is greatly concerned, brethren, again. See, this is the thing. We have been criticized. Myself, Brother Howard, Pastor Dean, we've been criticized because we spend so much time on being aware of false doctrine and false teachers and these things. Brethren, you realize that it is addressed over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because you've got to be reminded of the good doctrine. That's what it is. Paul's repeating himself. We repeat ourselves, and we've been criticized. We're dark. 
We have dark sermons. We sing dark songs. I don't know about you guys. I had a joyous time singing those glorious songs. It's an amazing thing. He was concerned that they were unable to keep their wits about them in order to discern truth and error. This was his concern with the church. It's a brand new church. And I've, been, I've taught these things. And he says, I'm concerned that you're losing your mind concerning these truths. That's what he's addressing, really, the mental aspect of it. It is an amazing thing when you consider it. They were troubled, he said. Not only were they disturbed in mind, they were troubled, he says. That which gives disturbance, annoyance, or vexation. And brethren, let me say this. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. Can I say it? You guys will see that this morning. There are several unique things that Paul says here that are only used maybe once in, in other portions of Scripture. And it was used by God himself, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I want you to see this, and we can only imagine. Brethren, if I could ask you, what do you think Jesus is talking about when he uses this same word? <laughs> well, he's talking about his second coming. He's talking about what's going to transpire before I come again. And he says, when you see these things, don't be what? Troubled. Don't be vexed. Don't be so scared and, and uh, unaware of what's taking place. Again, what the Lord Jesus has taught us, what the Bible teaches us, again, for the Christians, brethren, his coming is not going to be as a thief in the night. Why? Remember, he spoke that in 1 Thessalonians. Because we are going to be watching. We are going to be waiting like we are. Amen? And uh, the only time he comes as a thief in the night is to those who are unbelievers who are not watching. We don't know the exact time. But brethren, surely, we can look around and say, all right, there are some things. And again, this is the, this is the truth of Scripture. This is really where this is going to go. Because again, they were being vexed by things that were outside of Scripture. They were being lied to. We're going to see that by spirit, by mouth, and by letter. And instead of looking at Scripture and going, no, this is what the Bible says, I'm going to believe that, they were being troubled by what was coming in. That's why some of these books and some of these other things, you have to do away with them. <laughs> you simply have to trust the Bible. Amen. You have to trust what God says. Otherwise, you too will be troubled. You'll be like a sea, tossed here and to and fro in every direction. You won't know what you believe. So they were troubled. Look here, if you would, at Matthew chapter 24, the only other time it's used. Well, it's, it's used twice. Two other times, however, in Matthew and in Mark, Jesus is just telling the same narrative. So it's actually used once. Mark just records it. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Don't be troubled, brethren. Don't be troubled by what you see, what you hear. Lean on the Lord's perfect word. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Let me just get there myself. My pages are stuck together. Look at chapter, or verse, number, verse number 3. And as they sat on the mount of olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of that coming? in the end of the world. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man, what? Deceive you. We're going to get there because that's Paul's next concern, is that they're being deceived, the Thessalonians. Again, you see this repetitive pattern of making sure that we're not deceived. Take heed, uh, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. <laughs> 
I remember when myself and Berwin and I can't remember, there were several of us that went out to, to uh, John MacArthur's Shepcon, and I told Wendy, it's almost blasphemous to say it, but we, we went out on uh, Route 66, you know that, the, and uh, what's the name of that place, uh, that uh, Forrest Gump, remember, it was, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, uh, but anyway, it's, a fish, it's this fish place that you eat, and it's right on the edge of the Pacific Ocean, it's right there, it's the original one, I can't, how come I can't think of the name, but Bubba, yeah, yeah, Bubba Gump's, and we're sitting there, so we're walking down the pier heading to this restaurant, and, and here's this Okay, here's this old lady <laughs> sitting there with a cardboard box, and uh, she's going to tell me my future. She wants to tell us our future. <laughs> and of course, I looked at her and I said, I'm sorry, but I don't want my future told by some lady that's sitting behind a cardboard box with tinfoil on it. I will trust in the Lord, amen. She almost threw me off the pier for saying it. And then we walked a little bit farther, and there was, now this is, Howard, this morning we talked about this, saying things that are hard to say, and you shouldn't really say it. But the next person we saw was Cowboy Jesus. Cowboy Jesus had his cowboy hat on, and he was singing along there, being totally blas as blasphemous as you can be, claiming himself to be Christ. <laughs> I mean, really. And I said, this is a and I looked at him and I said, I don't think Jesus wears a cowboy hat. I'm just saying. It's amazing. Many will come that will be deceivers. And I got news for you. When we left, there was lines of people listening to a lady with a cardboard box and a tinfoil wrapped around there about their future. Amazing. Look at what Jesus says. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Wars. See that ye be not what? Troubled. That's the word. That's the same exact word he's talking about his second coming. The same word Paul uses the only other time in the New Testament. That's what he's saying. For all these things must come to pass. What? But the end is not yet. So again, brethren, we see this here. Paul and the Lord Jesus himself, they were indeed troubled and trying to keep the brethren from being shaken and wavering in doubt and wavering in, in disbelief and confusion. Who's the author of confusion, brethren? None other but Satan himself. It is not God. He's the God of order. He's the God of peace. So they were troubling their minds. So the question again is, what were they shook about? What was causing the shaking of their minds and the troubling and vexation amongst them? Paul addresses it. Look at verse number 2 again. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 2. Look what he says. That ye be not soon shaken in mind, number one, or troubled. Listen. Neither by what? Spirit. Three things. Three false doctrines, three false teachings that were being circulated around the city at that time. Paul says, don't be soon shaken. Look at what he says. That ye see, uh, uh, be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us. Now look at the main subject is what? As that the day of Christ is at hand. Now we consider, well, we think that's a little doctrine. That's a huge doctrine. That's a huge understanding and belief that the, the, the child of God must understand at least to a degree. That's the subject. 
They're lying in word and in letter and in, 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 in spewing things out, which we're going to see here in just a moment. False teaching infecting them from three ungodly sources. The first one, Paul says, is indeed by spirit. Now that word spirit's interesting. It is indeed a current of air. It's a breath. It's what they're breathing. It's the same thing we see in Scripture concerning the Holy Spirit speaking truth. These are speaking what? False prophetic utterances. It is a form of that. It is a claim of speaking with authority of divine revelation. This is what he's saying. If somebody comes to you with this spirit, don't believe them. Don't listen. In fact, let's just look at a couple of examples in the Bible of this. Look at Acts chapter 16. Again, this word, this terminology, just breathing out this, if you will. Look at Acts chapter 16. Again, um, just a few places, many places in Scripture, but a familiar portion to us, one that we can certainly grasp onto and relate to. Look at Acts chapter uh, 16. Look at verse 16. Acts chapter 16. Look at verse number 16. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a what? Spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gained by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God, which show us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that same hour. So again, what was happening here, brother? This spirit was literally breathing out truth. Do you, do you understand that? This is the, really the power of deception. She was literally breathing. We looked at this when I preached through Acts. She was breathing out truth. They're telling you there's only one way to be saved. Brethren, that's truth. There's only one way to be saved. And yet this, this unholy spirit was breathing these things out, and Paul just put a kibosh to it right now. You're not going to speak that kind of sort of thing, that sort of truth, tied to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not going to do that. So again, this idea of spirit, this damsel with the spirit. Hey, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Again, just a couple of them here. This is one of the things why we, you know, again, people call us, they think we're, what would be the word? We're, we're too tight. We're too tight on this stuff. And yet again, Paul, over and over again, says it. 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to all this, but I want you to see this. <laughs> Look there, if you would, at verse number 4. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another what? Spirit. That which is being breathed out. Unholy, ungodly things about Christ that, as Howard was teaching this morning, again in Sunday school, the Trinity of God and the truth of the Trinity of God and who Christ really is. They were teaching and breathing out unholy, ungodly things about who Jesus was and is. He's not just another man. He is a man, but he's a perfect God-man. Another spirit, the Bible says, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which again is what all false teachers have. They have another spirit, they have another gospel. They have another Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. And this really is, again, so very important. In fact, the spirit of truth 
is in our text, just a little farther along. And I want you to see this again, because you see this breathing out of unholy, ungodly doctrines and things confusing the brethren. Look back at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look who arrives on the scene. And we're so thankful and grateful for this. Look there, if you would. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse number 8. It's a little farther along. Lord, we won't get here next week, but listen. And when that wicked shall be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the what? The spirit of his mouth. That which he's speaking when he comes. He's going to speak truth. He's going to, he's going to speak these things that are biblical and doctrinal. He's going to destroy all the lies of what well, we're going to look at here, the man of sin. And shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. This is the idea. This is what Paul is saying here. If you hear anything... <laughs> If you hear anything that is breathed out about Christ and about the Bible, about who God is, you indeed do not go near it. What do we always say, right? Dabbling. Don't dabble in it. Steer clear of it. Stay where it's safe. Stay within the pages and the realm of Holy Scripture. Stay there, and you'll never, ever wander very far. Look at the second thing there, Paul says, and Chapter 2, verse number 2. The Bible says, don't be troubled neither by spirit nor by what? Word. Again, brethren, he's put this in here for a glorious purpose and a reason and a warning to all of us. Not by spirit nor by word. So the second ungodly source, Paul says, is by word. Literally a message. Again, this ties into the first portion of it. One claiming to have a conversation with Paul a lying affirmation asserting the authority of Paul based on unverifiable remarks. This is literally what he's saying. If someone comes to you with a message that supposedly is from me, and it doesn't line up with how I write, what I put in Scripture, and brethren, what I taught you earlier, then what? We are to deny it. We are to run from it. We are not to dabble in it. We're not to play around with it whatsoever. In fact, we have many examples, and again, just... One truth, which again is interpreted by another truth. This word, this false message, this false breathing out. Look at 2 Timothy. Again, just Paul had a, had a real love for Timothy, as we know. A father to a son who never had a father, and a son to a father who never had a son. Literally, Paul and Timothy. Paul never had a son. And Timothy's father died, so Paul was indeed his stepfather in so many ways. Look what he warns him here in First Timothy or Second Timothy chapter two. And again, brethren, we remember that there's three kinds of men he mentions. In chapter one, verse fifteen, he says there are those who are ashamed of the truth. They've turned away from the truth. But right here he addresses a very important theological matter. Look there if you would at verse number sixteen. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more what? Ungodliness. In their word. There it is again. That's the idea here. If you hear something that is not biblically based and doesn't come from Scripture and they, it's just something that's made up in their own mind, what happens? Their word will eat as does a canker of whom Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying the resurrection has already happened. Again, a sound fundamental portion of doctrine these liars were lying through their mouths about the resurrection. Paul says, that message 
will eat as doth a canker, an eroding ulcer in the mouth. That's literally what that means. That which corrodes and corrupts. So that stuff spewing out of their mouth is, is just a corrosive thing. It's a stunning thing when you think about it. In fact, Peter addresses it. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2 again, a very important portion of Scripture to us. Speaking here of false prophets, false teachers, look what he says, verse number 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. And there are. Who shall privily uh, shall bring up in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Verse 2. And many shall follow their pernicious ways. See? They're going to be sucked in by it. By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words... You know what that feigned words are? You know what they are? They're fairy tales. Literally. <laughs> it's, just, it's just amazing. They're inventing things. They are teaching things. And they relate this in a fictitious tale and way. Those feigned words, brethren. Oh, so important. Paul here again is saying... Don't be troubled. Don't be consumed. Don't be drifted. Don't, don't be all bubbled up like, like the seas of the waves of the sea. Just simply trust in holy scripture and it will indeed be good. Finally, the third thing, which we peaked at last week, look back at 2 Timothy chapter 2. The third thing he addresses here, of course, is the letter. Hey, if a letter shows up at the church, because you remember how they used to have the Bible, right? We, we have the Bible. It's such a glorious thing that we have all 66 books in one book. They didn't. What they would do is, right, we know this. They would, Paul would write a letter, or he would send a letter. They would read, hey, say, hey, read this letter to this church, and then when you're done with that, pass it on to the next one. So it would be like this morning. We were gathered here together this morning without our Bibles in our hands. And a, and a courier showed up from Paul. And he, and he, op and we, he opened up the, the letter from Paul. We would read it. We'd absorb it. We'd study it. And then we'd pass it on to the next church. Here we are. We've got it in our hand. And yet people are more ignorant of it than has ever been. It's an amazing, stunning thing to consider. Paul says, hey, if there's this letter, and again, as I said, we... We addressed this last week, so we don't have to address it again. But anyway, the crime was what? What was the crime concerning this letter? It was forgery. It was somebody writing and saying, hey, I talked to Paul, and I got this letter from Paul right here. See his signature's right here. It's a forgery. And he says, don't believe it. In fact, he says, my letters are distinct. They have a distinct marking. Look right at the end of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look what he says there. And he, does it, he addresses it in 1 Corinthians 16, Colossians chapter 4. He says this about his letters. Now you remember that some of them he dictated. Tertius, he, he dictated Romans to Tertius, and Tertius actually wrote it, but it was an inspired dictation. Paul says, all of my letters are marked like this. Look here. Now the peace... Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is a token of every what? Epistle. So in other words, there's a marking. When the brothers would read the letter in the church, there would be a distinct marking that Paul would have concerning his letters. He says there, amen, so I write. 
Again, these are the things. This is how the distinguishing marks were made between whether it was Paul's letter or whether it was some epistle from somebody else. Paul says there's a, <clears throat> what do we call that? Remember when they, when they put the Bible together? Oh, I wish we had time to get in that. We don't. But you remember why certain gospel letters are not in the Bible. Why isn't the Gospel of Thomas in there? Why isn't some of these other letters? Why aren't they in there? Because they were not consistent in marking with what the rest of Scripture says. They were out. There was a contradiction. There was something that was in the letter that just was not consistent with Scripture. And Paul says, that's how mine are marked. I will not write anything. The Spirit of God would never lead me to write anything. And you'll know because it will be marked by my hand. Well, again, the warning of false teaching. What was he protecting them from? Again, we, we looked at that, the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. He was protecting them so that theologically they understood this. They were being told by spirit, by word, by letter, that the day of the Lord had already come, that they were indeed living in and experiencing the wrath of God and the great tribulation. Can you imagine that? This is what they were lying about. So the Holy Ghost leads Paul to write verses 3 and 4, and we're so grateful that verses 3 and 4 are present. How do you decipher between what is right and what is wrong? What is truth and what is error? Well, discernment is one way. <laughs> well, you discern it through Scripture, right? Discerning. And we, you know, we've, Spurgeon defined that for us very well. You know, when one is discerning, when one discerns, it's very uh, easy to tell that which is right and that which is wrong. Biblical discernment comes in when, when you look at something that's almost right. Almost right. It's a devious thing that Satan does. It's a very devious thing. Now, Paul, of course, as I said, they were being lied to and deceived in these different ways. He turns now in verses 3 and 4, and he warns them. And also, he gives us such a glorious thing. Look there at verses 3 and 4. How do we know, brethren, that the day of the Lord has not happened yet? How do we know this? How can we glean this truth? Look at verses 3 and 4. Let no man, what, deceive you by any means. We're going to look at that word deception for just a moment. We really will. That, uh, for that day shall not come, now listen, except there come a what? Falling away first. <laughs> says, hey, brethren, look around. Has that happened yet? I'm starting to wonder if it is. And that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Oh, brethren, that hasn't happened yet, <laughs> okay? I'm just going to say that. He turns and warns them. He gives them a strong command that not to be deceived by and through any religious system. None. That word deceive literally means to be seduced wholly to be led into error, to be beguiled and cheated thoroughly, an unholy tactic, as we know, that is very near and very dear to Satan's heart. Deception to me is such a scary thing. I've said this a hundred times. It is a scary thing to me. 
You know why? Because when you're being deceived, you may not know you're being deceived. That is really spooky to me. That's a really spooky thing. Wendy and I were talking about just our Christian lives and that, you know, this really isn't a game. It's not a game. I mean, it's stunning to consider that. That this Christianity that we have in the West, brethren, I pray as I say to her all the time, I pray we're not playing a game. It's not a game. Deception is real. It is a tactic that is near and dear to Satan's heart. Let me show you a couple of them. Look at Romans chapter 7 quickly. Look at Romans chapter 7. There are all kinds of deceptions, ones that we must indeed be wholly aware of. In fact, Paul here himself warns us of religious deception. Brethren, there's probably nothing more damning to the soul than religious deception. Wouldn't you say that? Wouldn't you say that uh, religiosity and not biblical religiosity that James speaks of, but that this kind of religiosity, this deception that comes through religion is indeed a most damning thing. Look how Paul describes it. And again, brother, this is important for us to get a hold of and understand this. Look at verse number 11. Romans chapter 7. Look at verse number 11. He was, he's talking about the commandments. He's talking about these things. Verse 11, for sin taken occasion by the commandment, what? Deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin, worketh death in me that by that which is good. That sin by the commandment might be what? It might be what? It might become exceedingly what? Sinful. What is religious uh, if you will, deception. What is it? You ask somebody, will the Lord let you into heaven? Why should God let you into heaven? And you know what? 99, well, maybe not that high, 95% of people are going to tell you because I've kept the law, because I'm a good person, because I've, I've this, I've done that. That's religious deception. That's what Paul's saying here. At one time, I thought the law was going to save me. He says it was deceiving me. It was actually killing me. But what is it designed to do? To bring forth and show me how sinful I really am. That's religious deception. When you look at the commandments of God, and again, a saved person keeps the commandments of God. But we don't keep them to be saved. We keep them because it's in our heart, because it's something that the Lord loves, and we love what he loves. But it is not to be saved by them, and that is religious deception. Paul says, be careful of religious deception. Look at the second thing here, which is even scarier, self-deception. <laughs> self-deception to me is, is, again, a scary thing. Look at 1 Corinthians. Again, Paul writes about this. Self-deception. Religious deception, self-deception, very dangerous things to play with. And that's what Paul's saying. Do not be deceived. Look at verse number 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 16. Earlier on, the gospel foundation is Paul's service. But he says this in verse 16. Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defileth the temple of God, he sh him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Look at verse 18. Let no man deceive who? Himself. 
Let no man deceive himself. Any man among you that seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Don't deceive yourself. There's religious deception. There's self-deception. And finally, and this again is a cunning one that Paul wrote about. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which we already read verse 4, but I want you to see verses 1, 2, and 3. This is satanic deception. We have religious deception, self-deception, satanic deception, which is a very, again, dangerous thing. Look at verse number 1. Would to God that you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguile Eve. That is satanic deception. Beguiled, it means to be led astray. Through his subtlety, so your minds look at should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Here Paul is saying, again, think of how religious deception fits into that. Think of how self-deception fits into that. Think of that, what Satan will do to you. Simplicity in Christ. We were just talking, Wendy and I were just talking about this. The simplicity in Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. For with the mouth confession is made and with the heart you believe. That's simplicity. That's simple. That's not religion. That's simply biblical truth. And this, of course, is what Paul is getting at when he says Eve was beguiled. That's satanic deception. Now, the only way to be protected from religious deception, from self-deception, from satanic deception, is biblical truth, that which never changes. And again, brethren, we harp on this all the time. That which never changes. Paul, therefore, ingratiates us all in verse 3 with the biblical word, accept. And again, we see that there. Look back at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at that word, accept. It sticks out to us. And uh, we're going to uh, just spend a minute here, and I can see I'm going to have to kind of stop here after this. Look at verse number 3 there again. Let no man deceive you. By any means. For that day shall not come except. Now, brethren, that is a glorious biblical word. This is the most uh, adorned word, if you will, one that we need to really get a hold of and grasp onto to avoid religious deception, self deception, and satanic deception. That word except is a conditional participle. <laughs> You know what a conditional participle is? we got a little English going on here. There are certain biblical conditions that must be met. They must take place in order for the settled biblical resolution to be true. And what was the biblical resolution that's going to be true? The Lord's coming and the gathering together. And that there, we are not in the middle right now of the Lord's day. It's an amazing thing. In fact... I think this will help us to understand. Again, this is so important, brother, and I'll finish with this. Because I want to address the falling away. I want to address those things in a little deeper manner. I want you to see where it's used in the Bible. Look at John chapter 3, this conditional participle. And again, brother, these things are things, as Howard was saying this morning in Bible study, these are the things that are important, these little things, these little words that Paul uses this, if you will, to help us be settled and not be troubled and not to be all stirred up with false doctrine and these sorts of things. 
except this must take place in order for a biblical resolution to happen, to be true. Look at John chapter 3. Again, a very familiar portion of scripture to us, and one that is deeply needed. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles uh, that thou doest, except God be with him. So he's, this Jewish man's acknowledging this. Verse number three. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. What's that first word? Except a man be born again, he cannot what? Enter into the kingdom of God. Do you see the conditional participle there? The only way one can get into the kingdom of God is that he is born again. That is an exception. There are no exceptions to this exception. Do you understand that? That this is a settled resolution biblically. That no one can enter the kingdom of heaven except he be born again. This is the reality. No matter what people say, other religions, other this, other that. No, there's an exception. There's a conditional participle. One must be born again by God himself. Amen? That's the participle. Look here at John chapter 6. Again, just a couple of them, and we'll finish up. Because I got, <laughs> there's a bunch left here. Look here, if you would. John chapter 6. Look at verse number 44. And again, as a Reformed teacher, as a Reformed preacher, as one who believes in the doctrines of, Reforma of the Reformation, these are indeed, again, another important conditional participle. Look what he says in verse 44. No man can come to me except. Do you see that there? Man doesn't come on his own. He can't. There is a conditional participle. No man can come to me except what? Listen, what's the condition that has to be met? The Father, listen, which hath sent me, draw him. That's the conditional participle. You say, well, why, why, why is that important? Because it goes to the heart of what we're talking about again. Biblical truth. You and I can deny it, but we mustn't. We look at this and say, no. There is no way. There's only one way, and except the Lord draw him, you cannot go into the kingdom of heaven. Again, it is on the Father. It is his working, except this conditional part. So look at one more again, and look at verse 63, and we'll, uh, we'll bring this to a close. Look what he says there again. He reaffirms this. It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed and not and who should betray him. And he said, therefore I said unto you that no man can come to me except. Listen, this time he doesn't say draw. Except it were given unto him of my father. Again, another conditional participle. The, the condition is the father draws. The other condition is that the father gives. And so again, we see this here again, this, this thing. This is what Paul is saying. That's why all of these, and again, I'm going to bring this to a close. All of the brethren in Thessalonica had all of this biblical truth, all of these things that Paul had, taught, had already taught them. And yet, what were they doing? They were confused. They were messed up. They were troubled. They were all these kinds of things. And Paul says, no, 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 just wait. Here's how you know that what they're saying can't be true by letter, by mouth, or by anything else, except, and I'm going to have to leave it here because how do we know, brethren? He uses that conditional participle, and then he lays it out there. Here's how you'll know. 
Two things are going to happen. There's going to be first a great falling away, which we will address next week. Brethren, that has to happen. Except there first come a falling away. That has to happen. Otherwise, forget it. Whatever you're seeing, it doesn't matter. And second of all, the man of sin must be revealed. And he sets himself up as God. He's in the temple. All these things. These are all conditional parts. That's why he said it. The way we're going to know that it's really, we're getting towards the end, is when these things proceed. When we look at them from the eyes of Scripture, and we go, oh yes, I can see that now. I can see a great falling away. A great apostasy. Now, brethren, we look in the Western churches and really all over the world, don't we? And i got to be honest with you. As many men who hold my, my, doc, my, my doctrine of eschatology, they are starting to speak louder and louder. Men who have never said anything like it. They are thinking that, yes, indeed, we are seeing just an amazing apostasy. And we'll define that next week again. How do we know what apostasy is? How do we know what the falling away is? Paul lays it out there for us, brethren. We again look in Scripture and we trust the Bible. I, I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but I'm going to because people don't. They're looking for red moons and blood moons. They're looking for this and they're looking for that. They're all over the place. I remember I had a brother. Look, I, I got to stop. I, I had a good brother call me up and he goes, hmm, what do you think about that blood moon, Mike? Not much. Why not? Well, because there's been four other blood moons that all of you people have been chasing around it never happened. Brothers, be careful. Be very careful. And he fell for it hook, line, and sinker, and he was totally deflated. <laughs> because there was a red moon, and nothing came to pass. You know why, brethren? Because that's not what we're looking for. We're not looking for red moons and blood moons and, uh, you know, all this other stuff. We're looking for what Paul tells the brothers here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And Lord willing, next week, by his grace, we will see this is what we as Christians are to be looking for. Why? Because it is an exception. It is a conditional participle that must take place because God himself decreed it. Amen? Amen. Let me close with this. And we'll, we'll pick this up next week. Look at I had three more. Brother Keith had three more pages left here. <laughs> but we're going to address something, again, very important. We're going to see this in our text. This man of sin. And I want you to think about this for a moment. You, I want you to think about deception for a moment. Think about what this is. Religious deception, self-deception, satanic deception. I want you to consider this. We'll look at this, Lord willing, next week. I want you to consider that both Jesus and the man of sin have a coming. In fact, it's in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. It says it specifically. I want you to take note, number two, that Jesus and the man of sin are both revealed in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. So when someone's revealed, brother, we've got to look and say, is it Christ? Who is it? That both Jesus and the man of sin have a gospel both here in First and Second Thessalonians. Yes. Discernment, brethren. What is true? And finally, both Jesus and the man of sin say that they alone are be worshipped. We're going to see that. Brethren, it takes great discernment to not fall for this stuff. That's why I always tell people, no, no. 
Look, look at scripture. Go like this, open your Bible, put your, remember horses, they wear these things? Whether those, those blinders, they're called blinders. It's okay to be blind in certain things. It's okay to put them on and look directly in. That's what we must do. We must fight it with the deception and all the things that are taking place. Remember what he's going to come? He's going he's to come. We're going to see that, Lord willing, next week. And, uh, but he, his is going to be different because he's going to have signs and wonders. What kind are they, Howard? You can blurt it out. They're lying signs and wonders. Lying. <laughs> Very deceptive. Almost true. Almost. But not quite. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we... Again, thank you for this very unique portion of Scripture. And it is so holy and good for us. As Paul indeed is laying it out there just piece by piece, calling the brethren to doctrine stability. And really, we could use the word reliability as well. Satan is indeed the great deceiver. And he uses many tactics that are near and dear to his heart. Jesus himself, in fact, addressed it. When he says that this deception is so deceptive (laughs) that if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. That's how deceiving this stuff really is. And yet, Father, you've written in your word that which we need to know, that which we need to grab a hold of and understand and cleave to, biblical truth. Help us, Father, I pray. Keep us safe, Father, I pray. Keep us sound, Father, I pray. Father, now as we gather around the Lord's table together, there is another Conditional participle for those who gather, except you be born again. You must be a true believer to participate in the Lord's table, and we thank you for that this morning. We ask now and pray all these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.